Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Saturday Morning Life. You're Chapa myself, Umar Bhatti, and my co host, Noshwan Zafar. And joining us remotely as well is Rohana Lajima. Welcome, gents, to another Saturday. And looks like to be a cold morning, sunny Saturday. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice break from, uh, I think, uh, a long summer of heat for, for many of us. Uh, so I, I'm appreciating the change. Indeed, indeed. Uh, need a bit of cold. And uh, if you were feeling it last night, that uh, that um, many people in the queue looking to pay their respect for, uh, to the Queen will also be starting to feel it. And indeed, our show will kick off with um, looking at her, the Queen, uh, her legacy, what this means for the country and why she is so admired or looked at uh, highly upon throughout the whole world. And, you know, what does this mean for us as people in Britain and the Commonwealth and those uh, who have her as the head of state and the monarchy itself. Uh, after that, we'll go into the news headlines and uh, we'll also be talking about some interesting news um, uh, in around um, some company, a uh, outdoor sports company, selling their uh, selling themselves to a charity, basically, all the $3 billion they have. And then lastly, we'll go into looking at uh, a, a speech from his holiness, Hazrat Mirza Muslim, the fifth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, which he gave last week at the annual youth convention uh, in um, Alton, uh, and uh, also look at another sp- speech in the past from a book, Pathway to Peace. So just to begin, of course, here at Was Islam and Saturday Morning Live, we all, of course, join in uh, with the country in mourning and uh, our condolences go out to uh, uh, Her Majesty's uh, family and friends. Uh, surely to God we belong and to him we shall return. And of course, it is a sad uh, news story. 96 years, 70 years on the throne, 15 prime ministers uh, throughout those, and especially in the last couple of years, you see more than enough of them uh, shaking her hand and switching around. But in any ways, um, she has been a, a a picture of what the UK is, who the UK are. Many people through, around the world, if you talk about the UK, one of the first few things you talk about is the Queen. Uh, that's the sort of symbol she has um, emulated uh, for herself and for her country. And uh, there's some very interesting things to talk about. We will hopefully also have a caller, uh, a guest, sorry, who attended the video, who paid his respect as well. Uh, let's hope he's not sleeping because, you know, it was a very long queue. Um, and uh, we get his thoughts of uh, how it was to queue up. But right now, if you're looking to queue up, they're saying it's going to take more than 24 hours plus. So you're in for a long, long day. Just want to kick this off by, um, uh, if I haven't already, um, a, a new article written in the weekly Al Hakam um, titled Remembering Queen Elizabeth II, our Beno- uh, benevolent monarch. <coughs> And it's quite interesting because um, um, it gives a viewpoint of the Ahmadi Muslim community and what the what uh, Queen Elizabeth II means to us, uh, because you know Muslims around the world may be a bit confused as why should we be uh, looking to the Queen and mourning for her. So I'll give I'll give our parts and parts uh, throughout the whole um, reading of this. So. As the monsoon-style rain hammered the rooftops and streets of Great Britain on 8th September 2022, the sad news came in that Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II had passed away. Her Majesty is being grieved by millions around the world, especially by the bereft Great British nation. 
But we all have our own ways of grieving. As Ahmadi Muslim, we tend to look at the positive side of things. So as we remember the beloved Queen of Queen, uh, the beloved Queen of England, remember things that we ought to be thankful for to her. Queen Elizabeth II carried the legacy of Queen Empress Victoria, who had remained a benevolent Empress of India by bringing to the land religious freedom, a privilege previously unknown to the native population for many centuries. This benevolence had earned her a huge deal of prayers from Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed uh, of Guardian, the Promised Messiah, uh, um, and awaited Imam Mahdi, who had been sent by Allah the Almighty to rejuvenate not only Islam, but all other religions of the world. Under the rule of such a government and such a monarch, he was free to speak, write and publicize his message through every medium available. More than a century later, the fifth successor of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmed, was to echo the same words of gratitude to Queen Elizabeth II, paying tribute to the legacy of religious freedom freedom that the latter had continued to provide in the UK throughout her reign. The promised Messiah, salam, uh, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, wrote extensively to express his gratitude for Queen Victoria, and which can be summarized in his own word as follows. A great portion of the beneficence of the Empress of India is that during her reign, every person had gained a large opportunity for spiritual advancement, written uh, written by Hazrat Mizghulam Ahmed in the book of Gift for the Queen. The above cited was, of course, written by uh, the Imam Mahdi uh, in the Jubilee celebrations of in 1897. When Queen Victoria passed away in January 1901, the Ahmadiyya press paid tribute to her by publishing her biography and reminding the readers of how benevolent her reign had been. A memorial service was arranged at the residence of Hazrat Nawab Muhammad Ali Khan on Friday 25th January in Malir Kotla, where the great service of the Empress were remembered and prayers were offered for her. After two other addresses, Hazrat Nawab Muhammad Ali Khan delivered an address where he referred to the gratitude that Hazrat Ahmed, the Imam Mahdi, had, along, had all along expressed for the great Queen. An incident that he especially pointed out was a title invested on the British monarch is defender of faith for being the head of Church of England, but the reign of but the reign of Queen Victoria religious tolerance and impartiality progressed to such a point that a Jewish person was given position of Secretary of State. This shows how unbiased the Queen was. This was written in 1901. Uh, a half a century later, Queen Elizabeth II was to sit down on the throne, and in her reign, the world saw not only persons of Jewish faith, but also Muslims, Hindus, and Sikhs appointed as secretaries of state or as other important officials in the state machinery. This was not only a proof of her religious tolerance, but of ethnic diversity too, rather an advocate for both. Going back to Guardian, funds were raised for a memorial for, of Queen Victoria, the largest contributions coming in from Hazrat Nawab Muhammad Ali Khan. A total of 500 rupees was raised to buy books for Talim al-Islam school. In line with the tradition of his master, Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmed, may Allah, uh, uh, the, the fifth successor of the, of the promised Messiah, instructed that charity works be organized by British Ahmadi Muslims to raise funds for many humanitarian uh, causes that Her Majesty was patron 
of. These funds were donated to such bodies on various occasions in 2012 and 2022, a gesture of trust and respect for Her Majesty's charitable undertaking. In February 1901, when the British Indian government, pla- uh, government's plan to build a memorial for the Queen was mentioned in his order, Hazrat Ahmed, the promised Messiah, stated, in my opinion, it should be a college or a hospital. It is not mere co- it is not a mere coincidence, but a faith-inspiring incident to see that the fifth successor, Ahmed, uh, uh, successor of the of the promised Messiah, would donate very generously towards the charitable causes in health and education set up and overseen by Queen Elizabeth, the successor of Queen Victoria. We conclude with the words of the Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed, the fifth Caliph of the Ahmadi Muslim community, that he wrote in his message on the occasion of Queen Elizabeth II's Diamond Jubilee in 2012. And I quote, may God, may God the Almighty also guide the progeny of Her Majesty to become established on the truth and to guiding others towards it. May the attribute of justice and freedom continue to remain the guiding principles of the monarchy. A letter from the head of the Ahmadi Muslim to Her Majesty, the uh, Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. And uh, that was the whole article from uh, uh, in Al Hakam, uh, written on on the sort of day or two after. Uh, the sad demise of Queen Elizabeth II. Um, Nusha, I just want to ask you where you were really when you sort of heard that news because uh, you, you, you've you lived in a long... Well, everyone's, of course, they lived for a very long time. But, you know, we, we being as immigrants and our parents being, of course, from uh, overseas as well, we all know... We've all known only the Queen pretty much. So how did that feel for you or the, your family really? Yeah, no, it was uh, it was a... Bit of a, a sort of a bombshell moment, really. Uh, I think, all, all, although the reality was that that we knew the the Queen had reached such a grand old age, uh, as well as uh, been suffering from certain health con- conditions in in recent months and years. Uh, no, nobody sort of expected the, the the passing away of Her Majesty to 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 come so suddenly. Um, so yeah, it was a little bit of a shock, um, and. In fairness, I think uh, the country, probably uh, indeed the world, wasn't really ready for this. Um, so many people have, have been quoted as saying something along the lines of, but we expected the Queen to be with us forever. Now, of course, we know at the end of the day, as a human being, uh, that's simply not possible. But given how devoutly she served her country and, and her subjects for so many years, uh, and as we can see, performing her duties up until the very last days of her life uh, when when she uh, uh, sort of appointed the new Prime Minister, uh, Liz Truss, uh, just a couple of days before her passing. Uh, nobody expected her to be passing away so suddenly. So yes, it was indeed quite a shock. Yeah, and, um, you know, if we uh, really go um, think about... Uh, for a very long time, I think it's. It, it, I think you do, do do speak truth when you say it was a shock, and I think everyone would think continue because I was thinking about it, and I, I really wanted her to stay alive for longer because she was the only thing I sort of know about the monarchy. Of course, history we know about history, but you know there are lots of movies and uh, TV series which have been produced on her or about her or about her past. Yeah. And what's interesting to know is. The Queen's reign uh, uh, as monarch of of the United Kingdom 
was almost as long as the average life expectancy in this mm -hmm. country, which means to the vast majority of people, she's the only monarch they've ever known, right? As in, realistically, you'd probably have to be somewhere in the region of 80 years old or so to, to actually have been old enough to re record when, when the queen ascended to the throne. Any younger than that, and, and you probably wouldn't remember, and less than 70, of course, then, uh, uh, then the queen's been the only monarch in your lifetime. So yes, it is It is a change, and I think for a lot of people it will possibly be a, a difficult thing to accept and move on from, but just like with any other loss or grievance, I think time will, will help people in that regard. Indeed, and as we continue to look uh, on her life and what the future holds for the UK, we will remember her. Uh, just to remind you, what Monday will be the funeral, the state funeral. Um, Sunday, I believe, around 6.30 is the last time uh, people are allowed to go in and have a look and pay their respect. On the on hold, we will go to Rahan as well. We haven't forgot about him. We will go to him as well. But on hold, we right now have our first guest. We have Labid Mirza, who is a young trainee imam uh, at uh, Jamia. And uh, he was one of the lucky few who uh, was able to pay his respect uh, to the Queen. Uh, Aslam alaikum and peace be upon you, Labid. Wa alaikum assalam, peace be upon you. Thank you, thank you for coming on, uh, Labid. Um, just uh, to start off, um, how, um, why did you go and see the Queen, and you know, why did you stand in line for more than I don't know, how, however long you did? <laughs> so I, I stayed in line for seven and a half hours. Um, we got there at three o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, got my chance at ten thirty, but the reason why, I mean, <clears throat> I mean, it's quite clear for us as Muslims that. Um, paying our respects to our monarch or our country in general is intrinsic to our faith, it's part of our faith. Um, you know, you even know the quote of you know the Holy Prophet that that your your love for your country is also part of your faith. And so it's it, you know, um amongst other things it was almost our sort of duty or or a self kind of um fulfillment by going there and paying my respects. Now, you obviously had the the uh, ability to go and pay your respects in person. That must have been quite a surreal experience. Um, and and Queen Elizabeth, she had so many highlights in her life. I don't think we've got time to, to cover even a, a small portion of them. But but to you, what what were some of her, her greatest achievements in her 70-year reign? I mean, you know, her 70-year reign basically brought uh, the British monarchy into the 21st century. She w went from, you know, even if you look at just outside of her reign, her life went from serving in the Second World War as a mechanic to towards the end of her life, you know, doing Zoom meetings and, and, and getting involved in how the rest of the world is working with the COVID-19 pandemic. Her life spanned, uh, you know, 70 years, but it's not, you know, just any old 70 years, it's 70 years where a big change came about in the world. And she was there for that. She she witnessed that. You know, she's the longest reigning monarch Britain has ever seen, 70 years. Um, she, she saw a lot in that sense. Yeah, it is a, it is a quite a long reign uh, to look at. Um, tell me a bit about um, how it was to stand in the line um, with others. Uh, what was the feeling uh, in, in, in Iran with other people uh, who were in the line with you? Do you know, do you know the, the, the feeling was... I think there's a there was an underlying sense of unity. I think uh, amongst everyone's grief, the thing is, it wasn't just it wasn't just people mourning. It was also 
in a sense, people celebrating. What I mean by that is people celebrating the long and the long life the Queen had had, celebrating the achievements that the Queen had, you know, had done and and witnessed in her life. So it was what the feeling was was people, you know, they were sort of united in the sense that we, as a nation, as a as a wide community, we've lost someone that we all hold dear to. And, you know, there are people there from all over the world. I was, someone in front of me from Swansea um, who had just come in that morning and someone else was telling me about, uh, you know, uh, father and daughter that had come in from America. Um, it's, you know, it's it's a loss that the whole world has witnessed and a loss that the whole world has felt. That's true indeed. Her, her outreach goes very far and beyond just UK. Um Libby, thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, we might appreciate it. Hopefully you get enough sleep now after standing for seven hours in the queue. But we, we wish you all the best and uh, assalamu alaikum. And that was uh, Labid Mirza, who's a young trainee imam at uh, the University Institute of Jamia Ahmadiyya in UK. Uh, he was just telling us this experience about standing in the queue for seven hours plus, and also why the Queen is important to us as Muslims. He's talking about um, loyalty to one one uh, country, um, and it's quite interesting, isn't it? Uh, uh, Nosha, uh, we also had our youth convention, uh, annual youth convention, this uh, last weekend. And uh, even there, um, the British flag was uh, all, all the flags which we had was the British and the uh, Four Nations flag were uh, half mast, and including that, uh, the youth's own flag was at half mast as well. Yeah, it's it's very important to remember that as as uh, citizens of of any country, our, our religion teaches us to be loyal to that country. And so in times of happiness, we share that happiness. But similarly, in times of grief and sorrow, we share the grief and the sorrow and the pain of our fellow countrymen. Uh, and indeed, with the passing of the Queen, uh, as you mentioned, we had our um, uh, flags raised at half-mast as a sign of respect, as is tradition here in the United Kingdom. Uh, we also had exhibition uh, celebrating the, the life and achievements of Her Majesty the Queen, uh, as well as uh, the opportunity for, for all members of, of, of the uh, community to be able to come uh, and write uh, messages of condolence uh, to be sent uh, to, to the Queen's family on behalf of... Uh, of the MDA Muslim Youth Association. Thank you for that. Rahan, uh, we haven't forgot about you. I hope you're still alive and uh, not sleeping. Uh, but you, I believe you were at the exhibition as well in at the annual youth convention. Um, and uh, tell us a bit about that, uh, your experience and what other people were experiencing. You know, there was a book of condolence as well, uh, I believe. And uh, what were some of the messages or what message did you write? Um, yeah, Umar. Well, I'm still here, still alive, but still awake. Um, I think, yes, over the last week has been a bit of a um, roller coaster, I'd say, in terms of. So when, when, when I heard of the Queen's passing itself, I was down in London. So I, that was a Thursday afternoon. Um, and I'd actually come down to attend the Ishtama, um, the annual uh, retreat of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Youth. And uh, there was immediately a discussion. Um, around, okay, what does this mean for us now, right? Well, the Ishtama is going to go ahead regardless because that's been pre-planned well in advance with all the preparations being completed. But what do we need to do as such in terms of taking into consideration the Queen's passing as well? Um, because we understand and we um, reflect and respect the fact that she's our monarch and our leader. And like Rashid said, that this was a 
huge shock in the sense that um, we know that every person has to leave this world one day. With the queen being around for 70 years just as a monarch, it, it's amazing. So she, she's the person who's been there for many generations. And as such, we growing up, the only thing we knew was our queen, the queen. And she was a symbol of uh, unity and uh, not only British culture, but uh, also kind of um, our pride in that sense, where the whole world, well, the first thing that they mentioned, the UK being recognised, was, was the monarchy, was the queen, right? And I was actually many reasons, many people would visit the UK, they'll come to see the Buckingham Palace and all the other things associated with that. But yeah, so we had a discussion straight away on uh, Thursday afternoon, what we should do um, at the Ishtama. And one of the things that uh, we were instructed um, by our national president is that we need to set up some sort of exhibition or um, displays which show kind of our interaction um, as a community with the Queen over over the years. Um, the letter sent from His Holiness, Hazim Mirza Masroor Ahmed, the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community to the Queen, and also some responses that we have received um, from the Queen's spokesperson or even the Queen herself, etc. Um, which was really, really good, useful to see. And um, yeah, we had a book of condolences, as you mentioned, and actually this book of condolences has been um, set up and it's been put up, I mean, across mosques even, um, our mosques across the UK. So yeah, so a lot of people, I saw a lot of people engage with this, um, especially a lot of youngsters as well, which is good to see. So our younger generations are also keen in taking part and showing their respect and want to leave messages of condolences. And uh, other things you also had to take into consideration was that um, it was a it was a time of mourning. So normally at the Ishtamar, we have it's supposed to be like an event of celebration. So we had organized uh, we always have organized academic competition and sports competitions and outdoor sports we did not take part in simply out of respect for the Queen's passing. Um, and we also had some discussions, I think, around Ishtamar um, and even His Holiness Hazrat Masur Ahmed in his final concluding session on the Sunday afternoon. Um, he mentioned the Queen's passing as well. And uh, he did not just offer his prayers and condolences, he mentioned or instructed the Ahmadi Muslim youth what are their responsibilities in showing gratefulness to the British monarchy and everything they have done for us. Apart from that, also, um, this was just that they went last week uh, at the um, annual retreat last weekend. But over this week as well, um, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community has held several remembrance events. So as far as I've seen, we've been able to have them in London, Birmingham, Manchester, all the way up to Edinburgh. Um, and the point of this is just to get together with the local community to offer our support, to offer our prayers and uh, show the appreciation that we had for everything good that the Queen did and stood for. Indeed, um, and we will continue to pay her respect and remember her. Um, it's quite interesting to really look at this, uh, Nushman, why the Queen is really important, because we don't actually have a president, and the monarchy is in itself the head of state, but without power. Uh, it's a constitutional monarchy, uh, and... Um, it, it really is just, um, you know, it just sits there and does nothing, pretty much. Uh, but even then, its role, its um, uh, the role of it is important, and King Charles III will have to bear that responsibility. Yeah, so I think that that's obviously quite a long discussion in terms of how the monarchy has got to where it is today, 
but yes, you're right. The monarchy today has certain constitutional responsibilities to fulfil. Um, and in terms of a pure political power, yes, the monarchy does not have uh, any particular uh, p- political power per se. However, um, I think the Queen, what she has provided was stability as well as that continuity by having that by being that calming guiding voice of reason and so since 1952 obviously as you as you mentioned at the beginning of the show 15 different prime ministers during the queen's reign and what does this really mean it means obviously politicians they come and they go uh, and obviously represent their their various ideas and uh, and political parties um However, the Queen has always been there to provide her input uh, as well as her guidance. And if you like, I, I've always thought it's it's rather charming, you know, uh, having a Queen in uh, as a head of state in many monarchies around the world. Uh, for for one reason or another, though those monarchies are always uh, male-led, uh, as in there is no option for a Queen to be a head of state in in certain other monarchies. But here. We've had a queen, and and actually, I think that that has provided a very refreshing, uh, different uh, sort of perspective on on how well to lead a, a nation. Um, of course, uh, King Charles he he has very big shoes to to fill after his mother's passing. I think his mother has left a, a long-lasting uh, effect on the nation and indeed the world. So. Of course, we wish His Majesty, His Majesty the King the very best of luck uh, in in the coming years with with his new roles and responsibilities. Um, and and as the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, we will stand and support uh, his reign. Indeed, um, there's actually an interesting article also published by uh, Al Hakam again, uh, where. Um, as we know, King, uh, the former Prince of Wales, who is now King Charles III, uh, has uh, very strong views and is often uh, uh, been quoted uh, about a lot of things. And that's, of course, with uh, as time as we move on, there's more social media, a lot of insiders talking to journalists. So there's a lot of things that uh, come and go now, and it's not as secretive as one once they may have been. But of course, um, one of the things which I'd like to highlight is uh, his views on Islam and how uh, they can break barriers of misunderstanding. Um, and it's been really um, interesting to see that he had a very famous speech in Oxford in 1993, where he actually um, spoke about uh, Islam as well. Um, he's been um, he, he's been sort of a, a light. Uh, for uh, a representative, you can say, um, you know, he's had lectures such as Islam in the West uh, in his inaugural address in October 1993 in Oxford. Um, uh, he's also had um, sense of of the sacred building bridges between Islam and the West in 1996 in Wilton Park uh, in West Sussex, uh, West Sussex. And his most recent address was Islam and the Environment, which was delivered in 2010. Um, uh, on the 25th anniversary of uh, founding of, for of the Oxford Center for Islamic Studies, um, so really his um, he 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 has studied the Quran as as as, as it says in this article, and he has been a student of the Arabic language for many years. Uh, so his thoughts are, of course, very much so that um, he. Uh, 
he 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 is very much well versed in uh, Islam and he knows what's been happening. He's been uh, an ardent speaker against the uh, well, at least as far as we, this article goes, he's been um, against the hijab ban. He does not. Uh, uh, he highlights the misinformation after 9-11 and various things which uh, within this article it speaks about. So it's very interesting to see how uh, he is. Um, he, he, he highlights Islam. And let me just uh, bring out one quote from his, uh, his, one of his speeches. He said, It is odd in many ways that misunderstanding between Islam and the West should persist. For that which binds our two worlds together is so much more powerful than that which divides us. Muslims, Christians and Jews are all people of the book. Islam and Christianity share a common monotheistic vision, a belief in one divine God in the transcendence of our earthly life, in our accountability of our actions and in the assurance of life to come. We share many key values in common, respect for knowledge, for justice, compassion towards the poor and underprivileged, the importance of family life, respect for parents. Honour thy father and thy mother is a Quranic precept too. Our history has been closely bound up uh, together. So really, um, he, is, he, he, he knows a lot about Islam and I think that will be something interesting uh, to see usually a monarch uh, is, is is supposed to be quiet is supposed to be uh, not uh, sharing his or her opinion but because as I've mentioned before as time has gone uh, uh, and um, uh, the media has become more involved and they've involved them as well and there's a lot of insiders um, he has been a vocal person yeah, definitely. I think, if anything, the Queen has challenged many of these sort of uh, uh, sort of status quos of of the role of of monarch, um, and in many cases has uh, sort of intervened in into public discourse, raising her opinion on various matters over the years, uh, uh, including various matters which which may be even seen as political matters. Of course, we know. The crown does not get involved into politics as such, but that has not stopped the queen uh, from offering her advice or, or or sharing her displeasure with with various prime ministers, as as many prime ministers have actually attested to in various news interviews. Even uh, at certain points uh, over the last few days, we've we've obviously seen a number of of former prime ministers on the news recalling. Uh, various accounts of of their interactions with the queen over the years uh, and yeah one thing I, I i noticed there was that the queen would definitely uh tell a prime minister that actually i don't think this or that is is correct and i think uh, the 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 new king will obviously therefore be empowered to potentially have the ability to actually share his opinion on various social issues um to to continue the queen's legacy of actually providing a a better fairer society for all subjects not just in the uk but across the commonwealth indeed and i think we'll leave it there for now um because uh, we want to get into our next part of the show so let's just take a small break and we'll be back with uh, some of the headlines uh, around the world what's been happening uh, and uh, highlight the key things. So join us after a short break. There is an account narrated about Syed Abdul Qadir Jalani, may Allah have mercy on him, that when he set out away from home for the purpose of his education, his noble mother sewed his share of 80 coins into the underarm of his shirt and advised him, son, do not lie. When Syed Abdul Qadir departed, 
On the first day of his journey, he passed through a jungle that was inhabited by a large band of thieves and robbers. A party of robbers confronted and apprehended him. The robbers asked, What have you got in your possession? Syed Abdul Qadr thought to himself that he was being tested in the first stage of his journey. He reflected over his mother's advice and said, I have 80 coins which my noble mother has sewn into the underarm of my shirt. The robbers were extremely surprised on hearing this and said, What is this dervish saying? We have never seen such a righteous man. They took him and putting him before their chief related the entire story. When the chief questioned him, Syed Abdul Qadr Jalani gave the same response. Finally, when his shirt was torn at the place that he had described, it turned out that there were indeed 80 coins sewn into his shirt. All the robbers were astonished, and the chief asked why Syed Abdul Qadr Jalani had told them the truth. At this, Syed Abdul Qadr Jalani mentioned the advice that his mother had given him before he departed. He said, I have set out as a student of religion. If I had told a lie at the very first stage of my journey, what could I expect to attain? And so, I chose to stand by the truth. When Syed Abdul Qadr had said these words, the chief burst into tears, fell at his feet, and repented for his sins. It is said that this chief was the first follower of Syed Abdul Qadr Jilani. In short, truth is a thing that delivers a person in even the most trying and difficult of times. Saadi is true when he says, Never have I seen go astray the one who treads the right path. Therefore, the more a person adopts the truth and develops a love for the truth, the deeper a love and understanding they develop for the word of God and also for his prophets, because they are an example and source for all those who are truthful. This principle is also prevalent in the following instruction. Be with the truthful. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to Saturday Morning Life. YouTube. myself, Umar Bhatti, and my two co-hosts, Noshivan Zafar and Rohan Jima, uh, joining us remotely. Um, so we've just spoken about the Queen, um, her passing away, what this means for uh, the future, why she's an important, important role model within our society and beyond. And uh, we've all, we, we also had the opportunity to speak to one of the uh, per, per people who attended the uh, or paid respect to her by lining up. Uh, he had to line up for seven and a half hours, uh, so he was a bit lucky. But those who were not lucky had to st- are right now standing for more than twenty four hours, apparently. So, uh, and even yesterday, uh, David Beckham was um, uh, seen to have been lining up for more than twelve hours. So we'll go into our news headlines now, and uh, we're going to start with uh, Noshe uh, with his first uh, news story. Uh, Noshe, what do you have for us today? Yeah, so according to a United Nations reports, uh, the world is heading in, quote, the wrong direction uh, with regards to pollution, uh, as the latest figures from the United Nations show that uh, global uh, pollution levels are now actually higher than they were pre-pandemic. Now, over the last couple of years or so, um, we obviously had a temporary dip uh, as a result of lockdowns, uh, increasing number of people being quarantined, uh, and, and therefore things like factories and, uh, and workplaces being shut down. <clears throat> However, um, in, in the latest uh, uh, figures that they have released, uh, they say emissions of carbon dioxide during the first five months of this year were 1.2% higher than in the same period in 2019, 
uh, driven by increases in the United States, India and most European countries, according to their preliminary data. Measurements from all corners of the world, from Hawaii to Tasmania, show levels of climate heating gas in the atmosphere creeping up throughout 2021 and 22. Uh, and this is clearly uh, quite concerning. I think uh, we, we, we all remember the Paris Accords was that 2015, 16, something like that. It's been a number of years now. Um, and we, we've, of course, quite famously had the United States leave the accord and I think rejoin the accord as well now. Um, but but the question really is to be seen that we, we see uh, with quite significant regularity, I would say, various conventions and summits and meetings of, of global leaders. Uh, most recently, of course, we have had COP26 in Glasgow last year. Um, and it, it just gets me thinking, what is the point of all of these conventions if we're still heading in the wrong direction? As in, it's it's no good to be talking about taking action. We, we actually need to just stop talking and actually start taking that action, right? And I think a lot of the, the leading countries, uh, as mentioned in that report, the, the, the US, uh, India, and most European countries... Uh, with the exception of India here, let's talk about Western nations, right? Western highly developed nations per person create far, far more pollution than most underdeveloped or, or developing nations. Um, and therefore, I don't think it's fair to to be putting blame on countries like India or countries like China just yet. Yes, they of course, they have very, very large population bases and therefore... Have have a have have greater leverage in terms of a small change in a country of large population like that could have a large impact, but when we look at the per capita impact in Western nations, it's far far higher. Um, so, if if I if I recall correctly, the highest uh, uh, sort of pollution emissions generation per person in the world actually belongs to Canada. Now, you wouldn't have thought that you'd think the Canadians are generally... Uh, Very nice people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. However, unfortunately, they're not particularly nice to the environment. Now, that number admittedly does come due to some extremes in, in their case. They've got a large uh, shale oil and shale gas uh, operation going throughout the, the centre of the country. Now, of course, that's not particularly environmentally friendly. So shale oil, for example, is so horrible that it takes two barrels of oil's worth of energy to extract one barrel of oil from the sand. So I don't know about you, but maybe maybe our listeners can shed some light on this. Maybe if you want to call in, call in. Our number is 0208-86-7878. And you can tell us if if you disagree with me, but... I don't know about you. I don't like the idea of putting two units of energy to get one unit out. That's like saying, I'm going to go to a well for a glass of water, but before I can get one glass out, I've got to pour two glasses of water in. That doesn't make sense to me. But yeah, so my point, yeah, to get back to the point is we should probably look closer to home. Things like today, Umar and I have driven into the studio. Did we need to drive? Could we have cycled? It's little decisions like this that I think on a personal level... We all need to be be considering. Or car share. 
or car sharing absolutely or using public transport that doesn't mean you have to cycle yeah appreciate it might be cold it might be raining you might not want to but there are alternatives to bringing your own car everywhere um we we know of course here in the western world it's become quite normal almost for for people to use their own personal vehicles everywhere and don't get me wrong they absolutely still have a place in our lives right as in we can't depend on public transport or bicycles for every journey we make but it's actually about being considerate of of that use i think as as fuel prices have dipped again a lot of us have become a little bit more com- complacent in terms of do you know what i'll take the car i i feel that for 159 this morning <sighs> yeah that that that's that exactly as in 159 a year ago would have been expensive because I remember a year ago I was on a work trip and I had to drive Mm. and I found some petrol at the motorway services so if 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 our listeners recall just under a year ago there was a fuel supply crisis in the UK there was no fuel available in London there were queues everywhere people arguing and getting into fights Um, I actually had to go up uh, to the north of England from London and so I, I was a little bit uh, concerned. I had a full tank to begin with, and I was like, I only need half a tank to get there and back. But I was a little concerned. Uh, so I got there and, and I found some fuel for about 150, and I thought it's outrageously expensive, but I have no choice, so I'll buy it. And here we are a year later saying 159 is cheap. The world is a very strange place sometimes, isn't it? Indeed, indeed. Thank you for that, uh, Noshivan. Uh, next, we'll go to uh, Rohan. Rohan, what do you have for us today? Um, a bit of a different news story from me. And uh, maybe some people might say I'm opening up old wounds or still current wounds, which we've uh, stopped talking about slightly. So this is in relation to COVID jabs. So generally, the good news is that the number of infections have been increasing over time. And I was reading this morning that the total number of infections are at their lowest since last October, last year, October. But it's not the case for all places. Some places still are rising infection um, levels. But generally, um, the government and the NHS are aware that infections are most likely, highly likely, going to be rising when it comes to autumn and uh, winter season, as they did last year, done every year. So what they've done is from Monday onwards, millions of people will be invited to get their booster jabs. Um, and uh, they are urging those people who are eligible um, to protect themselves from serious illness by getting vaccines against both, both being COVID and the flu. Um, and recently, newly approved vaccine as well was for the Omicron variant, um, which a lot of people haven't had actually yet. So that's the first vaccine they're going to use. And the groups who qualify for an autumn booster, as they're referring to it, are, first of all, adults aged over 50 and over, people aged 5 to 49 with health conditions that put them at higher risk, including pregnant women, care home staff, frontline health and social care workers, carers aged 16 to 49, and household contacts of people with weakened immune systems. So again, it's the people who were um, high risks or caused other people high risk um, from the beginning. So they're the people who get these COVID boosters first. So in Northern Ireland as well, uh, the rollout will begin on 19th September. Um, again, the Monday, as I mentioned. And the uh, same plan also applies to Scotland and Wales. Um, the campaign, what they're trying to get do is actually get 1.6 million people 
a top-up COVID jab, as they're calling it. Um, and also for Monday, another 4 million people at highest risk, including over 75. So those with weakened immune systems will be invited to book a vaccine appointment with slots and offer a GP surgeries or pharmacies from the following week. I think a lot of it has become um, optional in the sense that you are recommended to get a certain vaccine and certain people are invited for it. But uh, you also still need to do, have that choice and uh, that you want to go to it because I think people over time become less reluctant and uh, they start to lessen an understanding of the efficacy and the functioning of these vaccines. Vaccines, the more and more you give, of course, but a lot of people here um, have had three vaccines already. So it comes to the first two jabs and a booster, etc. Now people are being invited to it for another booster result. The COVID infection levels in the UK have been falling since the start of the July, with the latest estimates from the Office for National Statistics showing around 1.7% of the population, which is actually in numbers, it's quite a lot, it's 1.1 million people, um, had the virus in the week to 23rd August, so around three, four weeks ago. Um, the number of testing positive would be one in 60 in England, so one person in 60. Um, I think there's still quite a bit, but obviously it's come to the point where we've, we've accepted the fact that this is something that will remain for a while and uh, we'll have to live along and go along with it. And we, we've definitely seen the improvement and difference that the initial vaccines have made, um, which is actually a high encouragement in regards to getting the boosters as well. So far, if we check numbers, more than 126 million COVID vaccines have been given by NHS staff and volunteers since the start of the vaccine program in December 2020, um, which essentially means that nearly all of the UK has been able to get their vaccines. Indeed, um, so we sort of forgotten about COVID really, um, something which was um, spoken about just a couple of months ago heavily during the winter time trying to get our boosters and whatnot and now we're being offered well at least some people are being offered uh, another booster so you know we can only hope and pray um, it goes uh, it goes well you know COVID is still among us even though it's at a low level but we still got to try and stay uh, protective myself when I'll be going on the tube from uh, I think next month onwards I'll be wearing my mask because you know uh, I know it's, yeah, everyone's sort of vaccinated but it's the first time after a long time um, going on um, going to uh, tr public transport during the winter time when you know COVID is sort of prevalent and um, is, is, is a cause of concern and can multiply during windy, uh, cold condition or windy condition, cold conditions. So yeah, um, that that's sort of a thing I'll be doing. And I'm sure I've seen already already people wearing even masks on their journey to work. But hopefully I'll be cycling to work, so I don't need to do that uh, too often. Um, now let me bring in my uh, news headline in for you. Uh, this is a couple of days ago, but it's a, a proposal for a, a hijab ban in Denmark, and uh, it's been recommended by the Danish Commission for the Forgotten Women's struggle which was set up by the uh, Danish uh, ruling party um, social, the Social Democrat Party which has recommended that the government uh, ban hijab Muslim headscarf for, the, for those who don't know for students in Danish elementary school um, the proposal on the August 24th <coughs> is uh, one of uh, nine recommendations uh, stated uh, 
to aim uh, preventing honor related social control of uh, girls from minority backgrounds um europe is not um uh, it's not it's not the first time europe has heard uh, the idea of a hijab ban it's uh, been spoken by in many many different countries especially in france where uh, there seems to be much more heavy pressure and it is a law uh, in, in, in its um in, in its national law so it seems like people are still not over a hijab ban um people are still meddling in around with people's individual uh, freedom uh, to re- religion and belief where uh, they are able to wear the headscarves so it's really uh, an interesting thing uh, for Denmark especially um, it's one of the uh, part of sort of the Scandinavian nations of um, Sweden Norway um, and Denmark being one of them as well. I think I forgot another one. Yeah. Finland, exactly. Uh, so they seem to be a bit more liberal, uh, but uh, it, it seems that they've jumped on the band, bandwagon as well. And there's actually a really nice uh, article in here uh, and um, a professor, an associate professor, who actually uh, talks about how this would be you know, discriminatory and it actually creates a bigger issue and will have... Uh, increasing pressure on kids and negative social environment uh, looking at them problematically and you know when the hijab is seen as a symbol of of you know a woman's a woman's free choice it will be uh, a a symbol of a negative negativity and uh, problematic so really um for us as muslims it's not the first time we're hearing about a hijab ban or as Trump had it the Muslim ban uh, back in 2016 uh, but it, it's still surprising I'm not sure if you can still call it surprising uh, but it's still to me surprising that we're still talking about uh, a hijab ban uh, albeit it's now in a different a different country and apparently uh, the study which was conducted uh, was uh, on a survey based on 1,441 students from the 6th to 8th grade from 19 elementary schools, 8 independent and private school, as well as 22 interviews with students and 17 interviews with uh, teachers. So um, it's a bit, you know, uh, a bit of a small scale depending on how big their uh, nation is. It's disappointing, if nothing else, you know. I think we talk a lot about freedoms um, and and liberty and and the right to choose uh, your way of life, particularly here in Europe, um, whether that be in France, whether that be in Denmark or anywhere else. And it comes across as a little bit hypocritical to, on the one hand, be saying that, that we ought to allow citizens to choose their way of life, um, uh, to choose their faith, to choose uh, sort of what school they go to, the food they, the the home they live in, all that stuff, yeah. But but no, you can't choose to practice your religion the way it's meant to be practiced. Um, it it does come across as a little bit we're holier than thou, and uh, and in my opinion, it's it's not right because. The thing is, we we can very well look to examples of other nations where we where people are not given the full freedom to practice their religion, um, and I don't think I can come across a single example where that ends well. Whether that be a case of the 
the the affected minority leaving whether that affected minority being persecuted or whether it's a case of something else altogether in in terms of uh, reduced trade for that country for example if 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 we were to say uh, just as 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 a very uh, uh, small example say the UK tomorrow decided do you know what we're not going to allow anyone to be anything other than a christian i think that could have very very damaging connotations if nothing else for things like trade and tourism people of all these other faiths who come to visit our nation every single year if they no longer feel safe and welcome they would very much question why should we do business with the uk and i think denmark has a real potential issue in that regard as well yeah well we hope uh, the politicians uh, and um, those who are the decision makers uh, don't follow that recommendation and that they understand that um, it is a a symbol of freedom of um, peace of mind for them and and um, you know we can only hope and pray Nushwan, you have one last one which we will end on uh, for this segment so give us a short one if you have yeah so following on from the climate change story talked about earlier so there has been a controversial proposal by scientists to refreeze the poles so that's the north pole the south pole arctic and antarctic um by spraying sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere so they say high flying jets could spray microscopic aerosol particles into the atmosphere and these would be used to reflect sunlight and therefore help cool the melting ice caps around 175,000 flights a year would be needed releasing millions of tons of carbon dioxide so this is why it's controversial um but a former uk chief scientist has backed the plans saying that polar warming is now at a critical stage and refreezing the ice could actually hold back the rise in global sea levels um the new study was led by wake smith from yale university in the united states he warned the plan would create a would treat an important symptom of of climate change but not the cause itself he 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 was quoted as saying it's aspirin not penicillin it's not a substitute for decarbonization so our core issue is still carbon levels within the atmosphere but what this supposed uh, uh route takes is the opportunity to actually slow down the rate of warming and potentially reverse it and the effect of cooling the poles is is a much stronger one than the effect of cooling anywhere else in in the world because the the poles are not uh, uh, massively inhabited or massively industrialized it's much easier to cool them down but also they have a much greater effect for the entire world um now they would need a fleet of 125 military air to air refueling tankers and they would release these clouds about 13 kilometers in the air um and the idea is that winds would naturally disperse these particles uh, across wider areas um uh, and it would cool the polar regions by about 2 degrees celsius which may not sound like much but when we've been talking about this 1.5 degree uh cutoff point for global warming 2 degrees reversed in the poles would be quite significant it buys us time to actually start developing and implementing as uh, alternative solutions for for decarbonization the environment something which keeps us going um we do need to look after it um interesting uh, article that uh, noshiman thank you for that so we'll take a short break and we'll be back for more after the news headline so join us after a short break a new station the voice of islam with live discussions religion and culture 
understand the true teachings of Islam with the voice of Islam. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to Saturday Morning Life here at Jabba Masal, Umarbati and Noshivan Zafar and joining us remotely as well. Uh, my co-host, Ruhan Al-Achima, nearly forgot his name. <laughs> um, we have had an hour of the show already. Hopefully you have been enjoying listening to us. Uh, we started off, of course, with uh, the Queen, her sad demise, Her Majesty um, and um, why she's so important to us as Muslims as well. And we went through a few he- short headlines which we picked out for this week, uh, which were quite important to look at. And now we're going to look at, um, you can say, sort of um, another big news headline which came out, which we didn't choose to um, um, put in the news headline section, but I thought, you know, it's worth looking at it and sort of dissecting at it because I'm still confused about it. Uh, but you know, I can't really be the judge of someone's uh, um, intentions of what they want to do. Uh, but we'll talk about this as well and uh, kind of hand over to Noshivan just in a second. But if you do want to join us and uh, be part of the conversation, you can do so by calling in on 0208-687-7878 or you can tweet us on at Voice of Islam UK. So Noshivan, what is this news story which uh, everyone's been waiting for? Yeah, so... Our listeners, you might have heard of a company called Patagonia. So they make outdoor clothing, camping supplies and the like. And the owner of the company, Yvonne uh, Schwinard, I hope I've pronounced his name correctly, um, he's given his business away to an environmental trust and a non-profit. So the company uh, it says it will continue to produce its items. So these are outdoor clothing, camping supplies and other goods associated uh, to outdoor pursuits. But now all profits will go to organisations to fight the climate crisis. Mr. Schwinard, the founder of the company and a reluctant billionaire, said when announcing the decision, I never wanted to be a businessman. I started as a craftsman making climbing gear for my friends and myself, then got into apparel. As we began to witness the extent of global warming and ecological destruction and our own contribution to it, Patagonia committed to using our company to change the way business was done. If we could do the right thing while making enough to pay the bills, we could influence customers and other businesses and maybe change the system along the way. Previously, Patagonia had given away 1% of its sales each year and in 2018, the the business of the company had changed, stating... We're now in business to save our home planet. But Mr. Schwinard, uh has said that this is not enough. Uh, the company's voting stock is going to go to the Patagonia Purpose Trust, which will uh, protect the company's values, and non-voting stocks will go to Holdfast Collective, which is a non-profit that will use the company's profits each year for environmental action. When decided what to do with the company... Mr. Schwinard said that selling the company and donating the profits or going public on the stock market would not ensure Patagonia would continue its activist role, hence the reason for his decision into giving the company into a, into a trust. In recent years, the company has become more outspoken on climate issues. In 2018, Patagonia said it would donate all money gained from President Trump's uh, tax cuts to environmental causes, A year earlier, in 2017, it even joined a lawsuit to stop the federal government in the United States from shrinking the Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante National Monuments in Utah. 
In terms of Mr. Srinard, he's quite an interesting businessman when you look at it because he's been very outspoken on issues relating to the environment. He's, of course, as as we just mentioned, started his company as a means of actually creating some climbing gear for himself and his friends and, and clearly saw an opportunity to, to market that and make some money along the way, if not to be a big business person. Although I guess that speaks volumes about the quality and, and uh, of the items he, he, he has created over the years. But he's always been very uncomfortable with the vast personal wealth that his successful company has brought. Um, in fact, he, he's been on the Forbes uh, billionaires list. Um, and he told the New York Times uh, last year that this was something he was not proud of. When deciding on what to do next, even his children did not want to take on the company. Ryan Geller, the company's chief executive, told the New York Times they felt very strongly about it. I know it can sound flippant, but they really embody this notion that every billionaire is a policy failure. Now, all the money from the company will be funneled directly into fighting the environmental crisis and defending nature. It's been nearly 50 years since we began our experiment in responsible business, and we are just getting started, wrote Mr. Srinad. If we have any hope of a thriving planet much less a thriving business, 50 years from now. It is going to take all of us doing what we can with the resources we have. This is another way we've found to do our part. Despite despite its immensity, the Earth's resources are not infinite, and it's clear we've exceeded its limits. But it's also resilient. We can save our planet if we commit to it. And those were the words of Yvonne Schwinard, the uh, chairman of Patagonia. So quite an interesting story obviously we, we discussed uh, a few climate related stories with you just before the break there and I don't think I've ever come across anything like this where we've got a billionaire he's, he's built up an immense level of wealth through a successful company and, uh, and all credit goes to him on on, on sort of uh, building a business from, from very very humble beginnings that has grown to such scale but he is so disgusted by by the wealth it brings him uh, when there are clearly issues elsewhere in the planet that he does not even want to sell it. He's just given it away. I I have huge respect for, for, for this decision, but be interested to uh, hear your views, Omar and, and Rahan. Right now, I am still confused. <laughs> it's because we haven't heard something like that uh, for any time really no. um, a billionaire deciding to give away his wealth and giving it for a cause seem, seems odd to me and I'm, I'm still very sceptical about uh, this whole situation uh, I won't make up of course any rumours but um, um, uh, seeing as what you've, you've read out um, and how it all started it does seem genuine in a sense um, that he, he is he is genuine about climate change, uh, environmental change, and you know, looking after the environment. You know, because it is oh, at the end of the outdoor uh, clothing, which you know you have to go outdoor to the mountains, to the forest. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where you experience the world, uh, basically. But to <laughs> still, uh, when I heard this, actually two, three days ago, I think it came out two days ago. It, it was I only heard it briefly, but even then, it caught you know, it caught my uh, caught yeah. my ears, and I'm still confused as to that day. Yeah, I I think it's you're right. It's it's completely unheard of. 
uh, because you you don't expect to see I don't know Bill Gates giving everything he's got away. I, I know he, of of course Bill Gates is is using his wealth for for charitable causes, but but not on this level. He might well have spent considerably more money than than this company is worth even. Um, and and he's pledged to to have given ninety percent of of his wealth to charitable causes by the time he dies, and I think I, I recently read potentially Bill Gates is even considering giving away a hundred percent of his wealth. Um, he he was actually quoted many years ago as saying he he wouldn't leave his children more than ten million dollars um, on his passing because he said that's more than enough to live a very comfortable life if you make the right decisions, but it's also enough to to ruin it in just a day. I mean, you can go and buy an aeroplane for $10 million and spend it all on something silly like that. But back back to this story, it's interesting. I think it's a wise decision because he's he's been very pragmatic about it, but he's acknowledged by selling the company, he has no control over what, what happens next with the company or where its profits are diverted. Um, and, and likewise, the same would happen if, if he made shares in the company publicly available. By putting it into a trust like this, he's managed to maintain control of a company to ensure that from a financial and economic perspective, it's able to continue business, it's going to continue making its products, and it's going to continue surviving as a business. Um, and the idea is, it will, uh, from my, my understanding of, of, of his reasoning, is that if this company remains successful, it will create uh, a continuing flow of cash which can be used to to uh, sort of respond to environmental concerns. Um, and therefore, he, he's appointed that, that, that non-profit organization to actually undertake the spending of the profits as well as a separate uh, trust which is, which is going to ensure the business continues uh, moving in a positive direction to allow for that non-profit to actually have ongoing funds with which it can continue to fight its causes, which I think is a very smart way of working. But again, you're right, it's, it's very easy to be s- sceptical of of potentially motives. I know in the break we were discussing that does this person have uh, ulterior motives for doing that? But in all honesty, sort of reading th- through that article sort of realizing even his children don't want the company because they see there's a greater goal here i think it really speaks to 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 the sort of uh honestness and and genuineness of of this person and 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 his intentions um and well i wish him the very best of luck but uh rahan have you got any uh thoughts on on this story for us um like Umar said i've got a bit of both um, in terms of thoughts. So, of course, there's scepticism around this puzzle game. You don't hear something like this often. Um, but uh, only God knows truly what his intention and thoughts are. So, only thing we can do is maybe reflect and discuss this a little bit. But I think I think what's attracting people or what gives people confidence is the fact that this company and the owner himself um, have been at the forefront or have been uh, are known as being very environmentally um, aware. Uh, and trying to protect and trying to preserve. So he's been, he's someone who was really, really engaged. Like I said, he started off with doing the mountain climbing gear. Um, he's always been at one, let's say, with nature. And in that sense, he's always been passionate about protecting Karen as well. And uh, 1% of the yearly sales he used to give away to different trusts and organizations which used to work on preservation of the environment. Um, so in that sense, it's not a surprise. And I think a lot of the long, long, well, 
long-term fans or essentially the customers um, are not as surprised by this happening. And uh, it, it, it comes as a part of attraction for them. So for the fact that they have, be, they have always been known as being environmentally conscious um, and they were preaching this eco-awareness years before kind of our sustainable fashion, which is only coming now, has become fashionable. So I don't know if you, you are aware even the Patagonia did an advert some years ago, um, many years ago, which essentially said there was an advertisement, a picture of their jacket, their own jacket, and they said, don't buy this jacket. Now, this is, seems very absurd. Why would someone say that a company or business or owner say that don't buy jacket I'm trying to sell you to the consumer? So essentially what they were trying to tell people is that they should get used to or try to uh, accommodate uh, their normally bought jackets for a longer period of time. So try to last for longer times so and don't constantly keep buying new products. Um, again, with the same theme of uh, reducing the amount of resources and uh, clothing that we wear. Um, and even with the brand, Patagonia, they're known as being an expensive brand, right? Um, a high-end brand, simply because they try to make products which are high quality and are long-lasting because they want people to buy less of it. Um, so in that sense, I think in that part, I have some confidence, but I've also read some other parts around this. So the money that's being transferred, which is actually 98% of the current shares, so the 2% of shares are still owned by him, and he's transferred them to a Patagonia Purpose Trust, meaning that they belong to his family. Um, the 98%, they go to a company or a non-profit organization called Holdfast, um, which is a non-profit that can make unlimited political donations. And uh, for that reason, it's not eligible for income, ta income tax deductions. So generally, when you're making such a large transfer of money um, in the US, you have to pay taxes on this as well. But the organization, the, the um, Hold fast, which uh, he's chosen to transfer his money to. With that, this move means that he won't have to pay federal capital gains taxes, um, which he normally would have had to pay if he sold the company. So he didn't sell the company as such. He still he still owes a share of it, and his family are still part of the board, and they'll be making those decisions going forward. So in a way, some people are actually saying this was to protect the company, especially he's gotten to age where he's realizing that, okay, what's going to happen after I'm gone? how to preserve the name, the values of this company, and keep my family involved in it as well. So that's one, one thing he's done here, rather than selling it to someone else, getting new ownership, which is unrelated to him. And uh, on the $3 billion sale, which is what you're discussing, th normally there would be a tax to be paid of $700 million, which has been avoided in the method that's been used there. $700 million, um, the owner, Shona, has doesn't have to pay. And... Uh, this is something that's being discussed as being unethical even. So even if his intentions are pure and he's kind of saved this extra money now, let's say he saved $700 million to go to another environmental trust. But at the end of the day, where do you draw the line? So Ray Madoff, who's a professor at Boston College Law School, he said there's a broader question here of whether the ultra wealthy should be able to circumvent taxes. So they're able to find methods or loopholes in a sense of moving their money, their ownership, and avoiding taxes through this. And he says that 
We are letting people opt out of supporting all the expenses of government to do whatever they want with their money. And he says this is highly problematic from the point of view of democracy, and it can mean a higher tax burden for the rest of Americans. So I think this is also a question that's come to my mind. Uh, some people say he's trying to preserve the company. You know, like I mentioned, he's trying to make sure that the trust of the company lets his family continue, continue to effectively take control. Um, as his family will remain on his board under the new ownership structure. Um, and others say that um, this is there are other intentions involved as well. Because even last year, there was a in the news there was a lot of discussion around a Chicago billionaire who did the exact same thing, and he had to he was able to avoid millions in taxes as well. So right, where do we draw the line of this being permissible, and uh, what impact does this have on the rest of the citizens around it? Yeah, that's a a very valid point you make there, Rahan. I think it's worth considering, though, like you mentioned, 2% of the shares, uh, which are voting shares, remain with the Patagonia Trust, whereas the remaining 98% go to uh, Holdfast. And if if we uh, take Mr. Srinard at his word, it's all of those profits that the company generates will go to a cause which I think ultimately is in the interests of not just Americans but all of humanity, isn't it? Um, but I guess, yeah, all we can do is sort of see where this leads to eventually because um, we just don't know. You're right, there, there is definitely a potential hole in, in, in taxation but if we look at it from a different perspective, we're now fighting for... Uh, I guess something that no amount of taxation will ever solve year in year out governments of of all colours in in all countries make uh, increasingly large pledges of we're going to do this or that for the environment and sadly um, the data shows that we're actually heading backwards instead of moving forwards at the moment so maybe it does require someone to make a drastic step like this and perhaps government will respond in future in closing these tax loopholes but then um, I guess you have to make your priorities. Mr. Srinod has chosen his, and then I guess we must, as as we discussed as well, make our own choices in our personal lives and in terms of how we can contribute to this cause. Yeah, and um, we continue to speak about the environment, uh, what it is. I mean, if you just look outside right now, and I was reading a tweet, actually, it was quite a funny one, um, uh, that the UK weather gives no warning when there's a change uh, of weather. One day it's hot, the next day it's cold. There's no transition in between that. So really today is a really cold one. Yesterday was uh, quite uh, fairly hot, you can say. Uh, well, the, the, the couple of days before that was fairly hot, even though it was about 2022. 20, and then the, the day after it was quite cold. So whatever, whatever the intentions are for... Uh, the owner of, the, uh, of Patagonia, it is going to be uh, remembered. But uh, I think it's important to remember that it's, it's not just him who, who who has done this in the past. Of course, he is going a bit above and beyond. Um, you know, we've mentioned already Bill Gates, who's done a lot of charity. Um, he has, of course, made um, 20 billion donations to his uh, f- uh, philanthropic fund. Um, he's also... Uh, he's also, of course, worth over 118 billion. That's a huge number. And uh, has uh, pledged to give his wealth away to charity in 20, uh, 2010. 
and also there's a the boss of hot group uh, uh which ranges uh, which has a range of online beauty and nutrition uh, brands he's donated on uh, 100 million pounds <laughs> as well to a charitable foundation after becoming a billionaire uh he was really uh key, overwhelmed basically about how much money he had accumulated and in 2019 julian richer who find founded the hi-fi chain richer sound had, had also handed over 60 percent of the business to his staff so it's not the first time people are doing this or people with uh, a lot of wealth uh, but it certainly seems to be uh, something uh, different uh, anomaly in what he has done certainly and um, it really uh, makes you think um, uh, will give a highlight to the planet although it's being overshadowed uh, positively by other uh, news headlines which are of course making uh, their way right now and um, I think uh, we have reached that sort of point where we will need to take a break and we'll um, come in with um, our next part of the show which is um, His Holiness speech last weekend to the uh, Ahmadi Muslim Youth Association and um, we'll also look at uh, a brief uh, look into his holiness one of his holiness speech from pathway to peace so join us again after a short break and we'll be back uh, for more we find anxiety and turmoil continue to spread and increase in the world we find so much strife restlessness and disorder we find countries engaged in wars Terrorist groups, political parties, major powers of the world, all consumed by their efforts to maintain or acquire supremacy, and leaving no stone unturned in their efforts towards pursuing their objectives. With all these hostilities engulfing the entire world, we also find a grand solution. We find a serene voice, a voice of reasoning and logic, travelling across the world forewarning that if these actions continue, then most surely the entire planet will succumb to a detrimental end. With the rapid decline of international relationship, the chances of the entire globe once again engaged in war is increasing daily. This time, wars will be fought with such weaponry that will leave widespread devastating effects. If a person is shot by a bullet, then it is sometimes possible for him to survive through medical treatment. But if a nuclear war breaks out, then those who are in the firing line will have no such luck. The weapons available today are so destructive that they could lead to generation after generation of children being born with severe genetic or physical defects. Thus, if the major powers do not act with justice, and do not eliminate the frustrations of smaller nations and do not adopt great and wise policies, then the situation will spiral out of all control and the destruction that will follow is beyond our comprehension and imagination. Even the majority of the world who does desire peace will also become engulfed by this devastation. This is the dreadful reality. By adopting aggressive policies and utilizing force, the world will be compelled to think of radical solutions, the most radicalized being war. Recently, a very senior Russian military commander 
issued a serious warning about the potential risks, risk of a, a nuclear war. It was his view that such a war would not be fought in Asia or elsewhere, but would be fought on Europe's border, and that the threat might originate and ignite from Eastern European countries. Though some people will say that this was simply his personal opinion, I myself do not believe his views to be improbable. But in addition, I also believe that if such a war breaks out, then it is highly likely that Asian countries will also become involved. Have these words of the Khalifa not been proven to be true to the letter? The crisis between Russia and Ukraine have brought back memories of the Cold War, with nearly a hundred member states of the United Nations failing to recognize the control of Crimea by the Russian Federation. Is that not a repeat of the past? When the Arab Spring first came to pass, many people in the world considered it to be a great means for the Arab world to come out of the Dark Ages and embrace modern times. The reality was quite the contrary. Is the world going towards this devastation? Hundreds of thousands of innocent lives have been lost, especially in the Middle East. How many more will it take for mankind to take note of the Khalifa's message? There is an urgent need to end all kinds of hatred and to lay the foundations of peace. This can only be done by respecting all kinds of sentiments of each other. If this is not done properly, honestly and with virtue, it will escalate into uncontrollable circumstances. So what is our responsibility? Most surely to listen to and spread the words of the Khalifa and put them into practice. Save the world from the pit of doom that it is so closely standing upon. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to Saturday Morning Life. Here, John, myself, Umar Bhatti, and my co-host Noshawan Zafar, and joining us remotely as well is Rohan Al-Ajima. 
Uh, we have gone through uh, quite a few uh, things now uh, throughout the one and a half hour we've had you and of course we thank you for listening to the show uh, you can still uh, interact with us and let us know your views and opinions we'd love to hear it uh, whatever part of the show it was and we'll hopefully go back to it on 0208-687-7878 or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK nevertheless um, we do have a new po- next part which we want to go which is the um, part about uh, His Holiness um, doing a speech at um, the annual youth convention and uh, Rahan Ullah is going to lead us uh, at this part. So Rahan, um, talk to us about this. Yeah, um, just to give a bit of background, so obviously we've already mentioned a bit around the youth convention that took place last weekend. Um, so it's called the Ishtama. Uh, this occurred last weekend, 9th to 11th September and in Kingsley in Hampshire. And this is a yearly um, convention that takes place for the youth of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. So men, boys, aged from the ages of 7 to 40. And actually currently this weekend, we've got uh, the conventions happening for the ladies and also for the older men, so 40 plus. So this is something, if you think about it, it's actually an educational convention as such. So the purpose is to have a spiritual boost um, but also take part in academic and sports computations. So in that sense, improving your educational knowledge, your knowledge, and uh, also your physical abilities at the same time. And it's also really, really useful when it comes to developing and building uh, brotherhood, which I think everyone is very used to. So a lot of different things happen. Like I mentioned, there's academics, there's sports, but there's a lot of interesting talks happening. There's an exhibition set up. There's hubs as such where you can play games, cafes, snacks. Um, so a lot of things happening at the same time. I think my personal favorite this year, the Ishtama, was uh, the Discovery Hub, which was like an outdoor stage that set up, and there were hay, hay bells set up where you could sit on, um, and, and we did the evening kind of, let's say, a bonfire set up as well, where we had a small with the chai um, being served, which I think people enjoyed a lot. And even on Saturday night, we had around 500 to 600 people attend the talk, which was amazing. Um, over the three days, the attendance was 5,719, so which is absolutely amazing. So the highlight, though, of the three days, which is usually the highlight of the three days every year, was his the Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed, may uh, Allah be his helper, his address on the final day. Um, so he graciously attended the Ishtama on the final day on the Sunday afternoon. And he addressed all of us. Um, a report was um, shown to him first in regards to what happened over the three days of the Ishtama, what took place. And then Hazur um, spent a good hour or so and giving us some guidance and some very, very lesser useful reminders and such. And from the onset, I want to mention it's amazing how um, His Holiness is able to comprehensively explain so many detailed topics at once and we'll go into that in a second but you'll realize that a lot of these things you can spend hours talking about and the fact that he's able to fit three or four of these into an hour speech is amazing but still able to also get to message across clearly um so his holiness started off with obviously the well um the news um which he also mentioned is friday some beforehand was the passing of the queen but it was not only a message of condolence or prayer that he started with it was actually a direct instruction or guidance given to the youth of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community 
in regards to what this means to them. Um, he said that um, it is essential. So one thing that he instructed the national president of the um, youth association was that we shouldn't hold any sports or games um, as such due to the sad demise of a queen. And he explained why he said this to us. He said, I deemed it essential because the queen was our long-serving head of state and she led the nation with great dignity and justice for over 70 years. So within that first sentence, he's able to explain to us the meaning of respect and what the uh, monarchy has done for us. And uh, he then got mentor to mention what the queen has done for us in the sense that she's been a beacon of religious freedom in the world and especially in the UK. He said, he said that indeed the queen herself advocated for true religious freedom and interfaith harmony on many occasions. Thus, we are grateful to have lived under such a gracious monarch. And here he's essentially explained to us the importance of being grateful to the monarchy and why we are grateful as well. Um, he says further, he goes on to further say that as Ahmadi Muslims, we should be particularly appreciative of the fact that we were given the opportunity to establish our Jamaat international headquarters after the migration of Hazrat Ali Fatul Masih IV in, in uh, 1982 in the United Kingdom under the reign of Queen Elizabeth. And we have been able to practice and propagate our religious Islam freely. Um, I think we all know that uh, Jamaat to the Ahmadiyya Muslim community has been established in the UK for a very, very long time. Um, and in this time, we've been able to practice and preach our faith freely. And we've not had issues as such, which we instead faced in our homeland. So for that, it's something we have to be extremely grateful for, and the fact that we've been able to move here, um, and they've accepted us here, allowed us to build our headquarters here, and also to allow us to openly practice and propagate our religion, Islam, freely. So in that regard, he's given us a les lesson already within the first paragraph or so about our duties and responsibilities. And this fits in perfectly to how we start our Qadam, our youth events, is with a pledge that we make, right? And uh, as you guys know, Nasha and Umadin is part of this pledge. We not only pledge obedience uh, or pledge on, um, to our faith, but it's also a pledge of allegiance to the nation that we reside in. And this, this, this first um, part that His Holiness mentioned is essentially him explaining why we need to honor that pledge that we've made to our nation and what that essentially means. Um, and that, that is what all Ahmadi Muslim youth have been taught from a young age. Like I mentioned, we had little children coming and writing in the Book of Condolences. Um, and I think from the, from the days, from the start, I've always seen this being a theme from a young age. I remember back in 2012, we had our Diamond Jubilee celebrations, which took place again across the, our mosques in the whole of the UK. And uh, again, that was the Khalifa's instruction to hold a dinner in uh, memory and celebration of that. So I think that's always been ingrained and taught to us from a young age, and it's absolutely vital for us to do. But there's many other themes as well. So we've already discussed a lot about this earlier on. Um, but some of the other themes he mentioned was that um, was in regards to responsibilities and obligations that he expects from us as being Ahmadi Muslim youths, uh, particularly in relation to our faith, Islam. So one thing, so the thing he started off with, which is of utmost importance, was that our prayers. So what we say is Salah. So Muslims pray five times a day, so the five daily prayers. Um, which are obligatory, which they must do. 
Um, and anyone who calls themselves a Muslim must pay great attention to guarding their worship, which requires them to be punctual and regular in offering their prayers. Um, I think this is something His Holiness probably mentions in every single speech or um, guidance he gives to us. Always the, always, the, always the first injunction would be to safeguard and protect and concentrate on your prayers and how this will be the primary root solution to any other thing you're trying to achieve, any problems that you're having or um, being able to live a good life. Um, and I think there's an important part here, which I took in my notes. I was making some notes at the time. And this is a um, thing that he mentioned, which I reflected on, was that in the same way that our physical bodies need food, air, water, and nourishment to survive, our souls, our spiritual bodies need spiritual nourishment. And this spiritual nourishment comes in the form of prayers, worship, so salah, as we know. Um, and he mentions that often people submitted before Allah with great fervor and humility when faced with any problem or difficulty. However, when circumstances became favorable again, they lost sight of their worship. I think we can all relate to this. Um, is that uh, what you're trying to say is that when we when we face difficulties, we are quick to cry out for help, or the faithful are quick to cry out to help to God Himself. That uh, I'm suffering in such or such way, um, please come to my aid or my help. But when things start getting better and everything is going well, they seem to forget their Lord, as if God is one that should only be called out when seeking aid. Um, I think this is this is something which is prevalent across all societies. Even people who don't believe in God um, would have these reflections. You know, why is it that someone who doesn't believe in God still calls out, "Oh God"? when they, you know, get shocked or they have um, some sort of issue or problem in their life. So I think this is something which is inherently part of our spiritual nature. Our soul is ingrained with our human nature. I mean, that's very important. Um, I think I also wanted to get you guys' reflection. So there's a lot of other topics that he spoke about as well. And going back to my initial point, he's covered a lot of things within that one-hour speech. So I know Umar, you attended Ishtama as well. What was the kind of the main key takeaways that you had from the speech? Yeah, I did. I was uh, very tired at that point uh, because, of course, uh, those who are uh, on duty, uh, of course, uh, serving for a very mm -hmm. long time. But yeah, um, I think um, there's a... The, 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 there was a quite a few, uh, and especially the one which uh, stood out for me, was uh, about being uh, uh, being hypocrites uh, and outlining uh, four signs of a hypocrite. And he mentioned in his speech, and, and, I, and I'm quoting off from uh, the press release, which was uh, published by the Ahmadiyya Press uh, Press and Media uh, website. And he said, uh, there are four signs that make someone pure hypocrite. Whoever has them has a characteristics of hypoc hypocrisy until he abandons it. When he speaks, he lies. When he makes a covenant, he is treacherous. When he makes a promise, he breaks it. And when he argues, he uses foul language. Um, it really, it really hits home because um, um, sometimes we don't realize that we um, 
without without knowingly sometimes do these of course um you know we hopefully don't use foul language but um small stuff when we you know speaking to our parents you know making a small joke or you know telling our uh, siblings you know I will uh, I'll do this for you but you know you end up forgetting uh, small stuff it just makes you realize um that uh, how deeply um you have to be interested in yourself uh, and to understand in what your surroundings are uh, and what you are doing um that it is important to not be a hypocrite because at the end of the <laughs> how can you go to someone and say you've done this and that when you yourself are are, are going against your own word so i think the, the part when his holiness spoke about uh, being a uh, being a hypocrite um and hopefully i'm not one um uh, I really hit hit home because uh, I felt like um, this was a, a very uh, key point His Holiness was talking about, and um, of course, if we talk about uh, world as well, you know, uh, the world leaders and um, how they keep breaking uh, covenants with each other, um, treaties and the promises, uh, it really puts into consideration where problems are coming from, is because they end up being hypocrites. Uh, yeah, uh, at the at that very big stage of where you know you want one piece. Yep. No, you're exactly. You're right. So that that uh, that that narration about uh, what makes a person a hypocrite was from the Holy Prophet peace be upon him himself, and uh, the whole of uh, His Holiness's address last weekend was essentially about how to not be a hypocrite, right? And the theme of the Khudam al the youth organization, for this whole year has been honoring your pledge. So in the speech, Hazur has gone through various aspects of how we can honor this and how we normally break the pledge. What are the main vices or um, sins that people commit that lead them to break the pledge? And you've mentioned literally some of those within what it means to be a hypocrite. And I'm glad you also mentioned the fact about you doing a duty um, and a lack of sleep because Hazur also addressed this in his uh, speech as well. He said that he's a great favor of Allah that he has bestowed this community with people who are ever ready to offer their time and sacrifice for the sake of the Jamaat. Again, this is also part of our pledge, remember that. And he says that recently thousands of Ahmadis presented themselves to Joseph Salana UK, which is our annual convention, which also takes place once a year for, over the weekend, and they put aside their jobs and other occupations. Many did not sleep properly for days or even weeks. Never did they express fatigue or other signs of non-cooperation. So he's make highlighting the fact that there are people with this community who try to honor their pledge and who try to give time in that sense, whether that's at the Jalsa Salana, whether that's at the National Ishtama, or other Jamaat uh, external or internal events. But he goes on to say that there were many who offered these um, sacrifices, but it is not enough to offer temporary sacrifices, right? For like a weekend and then go off and do your whole thing for the rest of the year. He says, rather, Allah desires for a permanent state of righteousness, and the way to achieve this is through namaz, prayer. And uh, this is actually not something that he states himself. This is something that's stated in the Holy Quran. Allah says in the Holy Quran, observe prayer. Surely prayer restrains one from indecency and manifest evil. And remembrance of Allah indeed is the greatest virtue. This is in chapter 29, verse 20, 46. So it's clear that it's an instruction from God himself to offer prayers. And Allah, Allah says that this is the methodology or the practice that I've put in place 
for you to be able to a gain close close closeness to me to get nearer to me but be also be able to restrain yourself from sin indecency or any sort of evil so protection for yourself too so it has it has the main benefits right there um and even within prayer you learn something about honoring your pledge you know this is something which i was taught from a young age i think we all taught from a young age um prayer is something that teaches you discipline because not only are we taught to pray five times a day which obviously we can if you think about it if someone just says five times a day it means okay five random prayers here and there let's do all five of them together no the prayers are also ascribed to be at appropriate or necessary times so you have to pray them on time according to the time that they've been set to there's the dawn prayer there's the evening uh, prayer there's the mid uh, middle of the day prayer so there's, there's different timings for the prayers um and i think this is something which islam teaches you as well is discipline and dedication to that as well of being able to pray prayers and at the appointed time so this is really a test from god himself as well and secondly another thing islam teaches you is that you should pray in congregation meaning that you should pray as a group of people rather than by yourself and there's greater reward and blessing associated with this again the part of discipline are you willing to get out of your house leave aside all the things that you're currently doing your worldly endeavors and works and are you willing to go out and go pray with other people like-minded people your brothers and sisters and that congregational prayer is what really shows the unity it's what brings people together people of different backgrounds class wealth um race nations standing together in lines and in those lines you don't even notice the difference between the two people right there's no difference when you're standing before god except in righteousness so this is um something that i think is very important i think this is what the holiness is trying to mention as well um and as hazur actually mentioned as well you know like i said at the start we we make a pledge or we we stand up or we make a pledge at the start of all our events uh in which the first stage we obviously make is the declaration of tawhid meaning the oneness of god we say that god is one and he has no partner and we accept the fact that the holy prophet muhammad peace be upon him is his servant and his messenger and then we go on to make another pledge around what our responsibilities are to our faith um and our nation and to our imam our leader the khalifa his holiness hazrat mirza masrur rahman and hazur goes on to mention this as well that all the fallen qadam the people in the different age groups have stood up and made this pledge today that they will give precedence to their faith over all worldly things yet words alone were futile until and unless they were accompanied by action and i think this is umar what you mentioned as well what ties into being a hypocrite right until you actually don't translate your words into actions and you don't act upon them um there is mere words and uh, you can't give someone advice in regards to a certain thing if you're not applying that in your own life and if you if that person is not able if that, if that person does not see you do it yourself it does not have an impact on his heart and he won't be inclined to doing that thing either so the thing is that when you're trying to preach or when you're trying to let person know that they should do a certain thing in a certain manner then it's most necessary that you should also be willing and actively do that thing yourself um i think i think it's also important to understand what it means by give faith over all worldly matters now a lot of people have this misunderstanding about religion that religion teaches you to disconnect with this world to not engage in your business and your affairs and to be by yourself 
um, like a monk, right, in seclusion and just pray to God. But this is far from the truth. I think Islam, especially with the Ahmadiyya Muslim movement, our Khalifa, the whole point is about teaching us how to integrate into society while still upholding our faith and our morals and our values. Um, and uh, Hazul gave some guidance around this. So there's a lot of people in within the community and in general, this is advice in general, who have day-to-day dealings when it comes to their businesses, um, their jobs, their educational life, etc. So a lot of people are employed in different spheres of life. And he guided all the youth, the Saddam, to abstain from deception in dealing with finances. I think often when we think that to work, we might get into a trouble because of a certain thing we did or said. We try to find loopholes or ways to get out of that. Now, that might essentially mean that we might have to be, we end up lying or we end up um, trying to deceive a person that, oh, no, we didn't actually say this, we tried to say this or that. Um, but he says that when it comes to their tax returns, so talking about the youth, they should declare their earnings honestly and pay whatever is due to the government. Similarly, whatever official papers or documents they require for personal or business use should be obtained honestly and all declarations should be genuine and true. The point he's trying to make is that even if a certain thing might cause you damage or you might lose money or it doesn't bring you as much profit as you'd hoped, you should still be honest in that endeavor. And in that sense, falsehood is one of the biggest vices or things that are damaging us on an individual basis and society as a whole as well. Um, and I think it's, this is a topic that's uh, discussed across all spheres in, of life. So, for example, one thing you, we, we say that is uh, how can we trust a politician? Which politician is really truthful? I think there's, a, there's a, even an idea or stereotype that all politicians lie. And uh, this, then is, if this is done by the people who are our leaders and who run the state, then this is obviously going to be reflected across every kind of um, part of society and I think that's also an important person thing to reflect on is that everything is going and says is spot on um, and as far as people try to ignore this we know that these are the issues and these have led to certain consequences as a society as well there's a lack of trust amongst people as such anyways um, and until you and your manager or you your friend or you and your family aren't able to speak honestly removals, falsehood, there will always be a lack of trust. And with the lack of trust, you cannot build valuable and uh, good relationships. So keep that in mind. I think at the end, he mentioned another thing was that in regard to the company you keep, I think the people around you, I think this is not only a thing spoken about in a religious sphere, it's also now spoken about other people as well, you know, the whole grind mindset that uh, if you keep yourself surrounded by like-minded people who are motivated about uh, growing and making money, you would also start becoming a person like that. But in the same way religion teaches us, Islam teaches us that the you keep also affects our morals and our values as well and uh, the type of person you are. For example, if you're a friend of someone who does not care about lying and openly lies about it on every occasion you get, mm. you want, you'll start seeing that there's not a problem with this either, and you'd want to get start doing that too. Um, so stuff like that. Yeah. Um, the theme of our youth organization itself is that a nation cannot be reformed without reforming its youth. 
And this was um, penned or coined by the second Khalifa, Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmoud Ahmed, um, who lived from 1889 to 1965. And <clears throat> I think an interesting thing that His Holiness mentioned, which was my final takeaway from his speech, was that this is not just a slogan, the nation cannot be reformed without reforming its youth. This is a challenge to the youth in itself. He was telling you that uh, these are not words you should merely display in banners. You should, in fact, live by these words. In fact, all members of the Jamaat, no matter which auxiliary body they belong to, must live by these words. Indeed, this slogan presented each Khadim with a target and a challenge. Every step one Khadim takes must be towards the path of righteousness and reformation. And once they establish the reformation in itself, it will be bring the um, reformation in general in society as a whole. So whether you are 15, 20, 30, or 40 years old, or any other age, you should grasp this opportunity to serve your faith, Islam, as though it is your last opportunity. Um, and this meant gaining knowledge, this meant gaining experience, this meant um, fulfilling the right towards your Lord, hmm. and fulfilling the right, right towards His creation. Indeed. So like I said, there's, there's a lot, a lot of this on the speech. So if you go on Al-Hakam website, as the uh, if you're mentioning the show, um, and there is a transcript of this address from 11th September 2022, mm. um, and it's called Shun Falsehood and Honor Your Pledge by Hazrat Khalifa Tumasi V. Um, and I recommend everyone to go have a read if you've not done so already. At the end, His Holiness finished with some prayers, um, prayers for us, for the youth, and the country as a whole, um, which was really, really a spiritual boost, like I mentioned. For the purpose of the Ishtamar truly was fulfilled by His Holiness's visit. Thank you very much for that, Rahani. Provide us a very uh, nice summary of the the speech which took place, uh, uh, delivered by the Holiness, sorry, um, last weekend. And I think we can draw uh, a lot from that. Um, but we are short of time now and we are reaching the end. So I'd just like to thank uh, all you listeners for listening into our show and my co-host for being again uh, good sport and um, telling us and explaining to our listeners as well and the producers and the uh, technicians and the background staff as well um, again we wish you all the best uh, hopefully uh, you are all feeling good and well you're able to enjoy uh, somewhat the uh, weather outside as well it's a bit cold but there is a bit of sun slightly clear skies but with um a bit of clouds around, um, but that shouldn't dampen your mood. But that all just leaves me to say, Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace of, uh, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all.